Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Nancy, my name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 10, aka our 100th episode. Yay! Yay! And we're so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing not one, not two, but three (laughs) films with a focus on final girl, Nancy Thompson, who appears in each film. The films are 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street, written and directed by Wes Craven, 1987's A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, directed by Chuck Russell and written by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, written and directed by Wes Craven. All three films star Heather Langenkamp. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest, well, you haven't seen all three, I I suggest watching all three. (laughs) If you haven't seen them, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch them. Uh, As of today, which is September 4th, 2022, all three films are available to watch on HBO Max, but I don't know how much longer that will be since HBO Max is going to implode on itself eventually. Oh, oh no. (laughs) Yeah, it's been bought by somebody. They're taking stuff away. A lot of people think that like some TV shows on HBO Max aren't going to be revived. It's very sad. So I'm sorry future you listening to this whoever you are (laughs) oh no anyway specific trigger warnings for the films and this episode can be found in the show notes are you still here great then let's get this morning started okay abby would you be so kind as to read all three brief plot summaries i sure will In A Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy Thompson's friends are murdered in their dreams, but also in real life, by the spirit of a child killer named Freddy Krueger. Nancy suspects her and her friend's parents have something to do with the vengeful ghost coming after the children on Elm Street. Will Nancy be able to discover the secret their parents are hiding? And will she be able to stop Freddy before any more teens are killed? In A Nightmare on Elm Street 3... Dream Warriors, Nancy is grown up and working as an intern therapist at a psychiatric hospital. There, she meets a group of teens who refuse to sleep because they all share the same nightmare about Freddy Krueger. Will Nancy be able to help the teens face their fears and fight Freddy? And if she does, will she make it out of the fight alive herself? In Wes Craven's new nightmare, Actor Heather Langenkamp, best known for playing Nancy Thompson in A Nightmare on Elm Street and Dream Warriors, has been feeling on edge lately. A stalker is calling her house nonstop, 
Los Angeles is experiencing terrible earthquakes. Her young son keeps having nightmares about Freddy Krueger. Her husband just died. And she just can't seem to shake being known as a scream queen. When director Wes Craven asks her to star in his last Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Heather is hesitant, but she'll soon learn whether she takes the gig or not, she'll never be able to shake Fred Krueger's spirit. Or will she? Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) Thank you, Abby, for those lovely plot summaries. Okay, so let's get into the brief history uh, behind the production of each film. So I think this is already pretty well known in the horror community, especially those who love this franchise. But some of the backstory surrounding the development of this first film came as a surprise to me personally. Um, to sum it all up in a neat little nutshell, according to Jeff Saparito, quote, A Nightmare on Elm Street was inspired by a medical condition suffered by Asian men in the late 1970s and early 1980s, particular among Hmong refugees in America who escaped the Cambodian genocide. These otherwise healthy young men were dying in their sleep and many reported bad dreams prior to their deaths. Further, a childhood bully inspired Fred Krueger's name and a story about a drunk man in a hat who freaked out director Wes Craven as a kid contributed to Freddy's look. The red and green sweater was a result of a Scientific American article which said that those colors are the most clashing to the human retina. Wow, I love it. Love Yes. Uh, According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the first film, writer-director Wes Craven began writing the screenplay for A Nightmare on Elm Street around 1981, after he had finished production on Swamp Thing from 1982. He pitched it to several studios, but each one of them rejected it. Finally, the fledgling independent New Line Cinema Corporation, which had up to that point only distributed films, agreed to produce the film. Although New Line Cinema has gone down to make bigger and more profitable films, A Nightmare on Elm Street was its first commercial success, and the studio is often referred to as the house that Freddy built, unquote. According to Jack Shoulder, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, Bob Shea, the producer at New Line Cinema, was the first guy to distribute John Waters, the first to distribute Werner Herzog, and so he always felt like an outsider, and that's what drove him. So it's no wonder that New Line Cinema had faith in Craven's weird little supernatural horror film. It just seemed like it was right up Bob Shea's alley. Hmm... According to the Nightmare on Elm Street docuseries Never Sleep Again, actor David Warner, R.I.P., was cast as Freddy, but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. Kane Hodder, best known for playing Jason Voorhees, was in talks of replacing Warner, which is so wild to me because those two actors are completely different types of people. Mm-hmm. Like in so many more ways than one. Um, yep. But according to Kane Hodder in an interview with Fangoria, at the time, Wes Craven wasn't sure what kind of person he wanted for the role of Freddy. So I had as good a shot as anybody else. Eventually, Wes Craven went back to the quote-unquote David Warner type actor and cast Robert England. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, Wes Craven explained... 
I couldn't find an actor to play Freddy Krueger with the sense of ferocity I was seeking. And he recalled this on the film's 30th anniversary. Craven goes on to say, everyone was too quiet and too compassionate towards children. Then Robert England auditioned. <laughs> oh, God. He wasn't as tall as I had hoped, and he had baby fat on his face. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> but he impressed me with his willingness to go to dark places in his mind. Robert understood Freddy, unquote. I cannot imagine anyone else playing Freddy. No, he's was born for it. He's perfect. Yeah, the remake also. Oh my gosh, I love, I love, love, love that actor that played Freddy. But oh no, but it, no it one. felt weird. It didn't feel right. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, yeah it was very weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw that movie in theaters. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yeah, I did, and that was actually <laughs> the first time I had seen any Nightmare on Elm Street film. Oh no. I know. So when that came out in theaters, I was like, I have actually never seen any of these movies. And when I watched it, I was like, I feel like now I need to go and watch those movies because this was not good. <laughs> yeah, that remake was probably one of the best things that happened to the original <laughs> Probably, movies. Probably for me, yeah, because then I went and watched all the other ones. Yes. Well, I watched the original I did, and I watched um, Freddy 2. But that's it. Mm, <laughs> I didn't watch yeah. the anyway, we'll get into that. Yes, yes. According to Kyle Christensen, quote, in the original shooting script for A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger was written as a child molester. Actor Robert England ex- recalls, was Craven wrote the most evil, corrupt thing he could think of. And originally... That meant Freddy was the child molester. But while we were shooting the film, there was a huge scandal based around an area of single parent yuppies in California known as South Bay. Child molesters had descended on this unsupervised flotsam of children. On the spot, we changed the script from child molester to child murderer, mainly so that Wes Craven wouldn't be accused of exploiting that South Bay case, unquote. Wow. Yeah, which child death and child abuse, uh, they pretty much go hand in hand. So I guess it's still pretty upsetting. Now, for our girl Nancy. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the first film, Craven said he wanted someone very non-Hollywood for the role of Nancy. And he believed 18-year-old Heather Langenkamp met this quality. Langenkamp, who had appeared in several commercials and a TV film, had taken time off from her studies at Stanford to continue acting. Eventually, she landed the role of Nancy Thompson after an open audition, beating out more than 200 actresses. Wow. Yeah, and we'll talk more about Nancy's look later on in the episode. After the MPAA required two cuts of the film, A Nightmare on Elm Street was finally released in the USA in November of 1984, and then in the UK in 1985. The film was immediately a commercial success and earned over $1 million its opening weekend and eventually $57 million worldwide on a budget of only $1.1 million. So... It earned its initial budget back just that opening weekend. (laughs) Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. According to Wes Craven for Vulture, producer Bob Shea wanted a hook for a sequel. But I felt that the film should end when Nancy turns her back on Freddy and his violence. That's the one thing that kills him. 
Bob, however, wanted to have Freddie pick up the kids in a car and drive off, which reversed everything I was trying to say. It suddenly presented Freddie as triumphant. I came up with a compromise, which was to have the kids get in the convertible, and when the roof comes down, we'd have Freddie's red and green stripes on it. Do I regret changing the ending? I do, because it's the one part of the film that isn't me, unquote. That's actually kind of sad, and it's definitely the most hokey part of the film, too, and it doesn't feel like it fits within the film, in my opinion, at all. No, it's definitely strange. It it almost feels kind of like um, Tim Burton-y to me. Sure. <laughs> like, I feel like Tim Burton drew a lot of inspiration from that, but, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just feel, it feels like a producer ending. Yeah. It feels yeah, like yeah, something yeah, yeah. a producer would say, this is how the film needs to end. Um, <laughs> it's And that's exactly what happened. So there you go. Yeah. Um, oh. So, Abby, would you be so kind as to talk about how Dream Warriors and New Nightmare came into being? Yes, definitely. So, of course, New Line Cinema wanted a sequel ASAP. We're not here to talk about that sequel, even though Gracie and I do have a history with it. You should check out the show notes to find links to our episodes and guest episodes related to A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Um, now, I think we all know that as much as Freddy's Revenge is an amazingly wild and very gay horror film, it was not received well when it was released. Um, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to Dream Warriors, quote, following the critical failure of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, New Line Cinema was unsure if they would continue with the series. Wes Craven, who wrote and directed the original Nightmare on Elm Street, did not participate in the first sequel. He had not wanted the original to evolve into a franchise, but would co-write the screenplay for the third installment with the intention that it would end the series. The success of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, prompted a continuation of the series, unquote. Epic fail! (laughs) Freddy just wouldn't die to Craven's dismay. And the reason why Craven didn't direct this film was because he was making a movie called Deadly Friend at the time. So according to Wikipedia, quote, Wes Craven has said about the direction that he and fellow writer Bruce Wagner wanted to take the franchise in that, quote, we decided that it could no longer be one person fighting Freddy. It had to be a group because the souls of Freddy's victims have made Freddy stronger, unquote. He also called Heather Langenkamp to ask her if he may include her character Nancy in the script, which she agreed to. And both Heather Langenkamp and co-star Craig, is it Craig Wasson? Sure. Both Heather Langenkamp. Wasson. (laughs) Here we come, a (laughs) Wassoning. And both Heather Langenkamp and co-star Craig Wasson refer to a scene they filmed in which they kissed but was not included in the film, with Wasson stating, no, we didn't have sex, but there was this one real hot kiss that just about melted the camera lens. Too bad they cut it. (laughs) Which, okay, dude, like, calm down. (laughs) Oh, my God. Man, the 80s were wild. Okay. So. <laughs> it was one hot kiss. <laughs> All right. 
Cool. Put your, put it back in your pants. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, we're we're gonna talk about Nancy's sexuality because of course we are later on in the episode. <laughs> Dream Warriors opened at the box office in February 1987, and it was a huge success. On a budget of about $4.6 million, the film made almost $9 million its opening weekend and ultimately made a little over $44 million while in theaters. According to Box Office Mojo, it is the third highest-grossing film of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise after Freddy vs. Jason and A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. <laughs> Seven years and three more Nightmare on Elm Street films later. <laughs> <laughs> Wes Craven's masterpiece meta-horror film was born, and no, it wasn't Scream. Bum, bum, bum. According to the DVD commentary for Wes Craven's new Nightmare, written under the working title A Nightmare on Elm Street 7, The Ascension, Wes Craven... <laughs> I'm glad Whoa. it wasn't called that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> A Nightmare on Elm Street 7, The Nightmare Awakens. <laughs> yeah, yes. Wes Craven set out to make a deliberately more cerebral film than recent entries to the franchise, which he regarded as being cartoonish and not faithful to his original themes. The basic premise originated when Craven first signed on to co-write Dream Warriors, but New Line Cinema rejected it then. And according to Brian J. Robb, in A New Nightmare, Kruger was portrayed closer to what Craven had imagined, darker and less comical. To reinforce this, the character's makeup and outfit were enhanced, with one of the most prominent differences being that he wears a long, like, blue-black trench coat. In addition, the signature glove was redesigned to make a more organic look, with the fingers resembling bones and having muscle textures in between. While Robert England plays the character Freddy Krueger, it's credited as himself in the end credits. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, on the film's opening weekend, it made $6.6 million, ranking third at the box office. It went on to gross $19.8 million worldwide, making it the poorest performing film in, a in the A Nightmare on Elm Street film series. That is, like, wow. that is like devastating, yeah. Yeah. In the 2010 documentary, Never Sleep Again, it is suggested that the film opening against Pulp Fiction may have also damaged its potential box office. Yeah, wow. That's, yeah. that's a tough one to open up with, honestly. Well, I actually have a little story. During research, I found out that Wes Craven saw Reservoir Dogs. Uh -huh. And he had to walk out of the theater because it was too much for him. And so he was like, oh, no, this is too violent for me, Wes Craven. So he walked out of the theater and this guy jumped in front of him and he said, why are you leaving? And Wes Craven said, I can't do it. It's too much. Like, it's too <gasps> violent. It's too scary. And it was Quentin Tarantino. And he said, yes, I scared Wes Craven. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And so then, of course, so many years later, we got Pulp Fiction against New Nightmare and... You know, Pulp Fiction came out on top. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, I know. It's kind of sad in a way, especially since Quentin Tarantino is a questionable man. But (laughs) it was Craven seems like the sweetest, the biggest sweetheart ever. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, so, uh, wow. Let's get into the production of this film. Uh, yeah, just so everyone knows, Abby and I are not big fans of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Doesn't mean we don't really like it. We just don't know a lot about it. So we had to do a lot of research for <laughs> for this episode. Uh, we ended up even getting some help from two amazing people. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to give a huge thank you to Amber R.W. Knapp for writing uh, an important piece for this episode that you'll hear about in a second. And Nadia Moraga, who assisted us in writing this episode by researching a lot of the topics that we used for the discussion. These two amazing horror fans, writers, and researchers dedicated their free time to help us out, and we couldn't be more grateful. Thank you both so, so much. You the okay. best. Yes. Okay. So here we are. Episode 100. We're talking about Nancy freaking Thompson. (laughs) And uh, if you're new to the show, if you haven't noticed, our name is Good Morning Nancy. We named the show after her. Mm -hmm. And uh, you'll see why. She's a badass. Yes. All right. Nightmare on Elm Street, 1984. I suppose we should get right to it. Let's talk about Nancy as a final girl. Here we go. Back to basics. (laughs) <laughs> so, first off, what is a final girl? Yes, when I said back to basics, I really meant it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Also, there's a lot of Wikipedias. Uh, I know we quote Wikipedia a lot in normal episodes anyway, but there's a little bit more in this one because we wanted, like, the the simple example, like, the simple things to be Wikipedia because we did a lot of scholarly research for everything else in this. Yes. So don't give us, don't, don't. Don't send any hate our way. Wikipedia is way different than it used to be. <laughs> also, donate to, to check your facts. Seriously, donate to Wikipedia. Also, yeah, they we do would, a lot no of really good work. Here. <laughs> I know no one would be here without Wikipedia. It's great. It's true. All right. So, uh, according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the final girl trope, the final girl is a trope in horror films, particularly slasher films, and it refers to the last girl or girls or woman alive to confront the killer ostensibly the one that's left to tell the story the final girl has been observed in many films including the texas chainsaw massacre halloween alien friday the 13th and a nightmare on elm street of course scream and even train to busan the term was coined by carol j clover in her book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film from 1992. Clover suggested that in these films, the viewer began by sharing the perspective of the killer, but experienced a shift in identification to the final girl partway through the film. According to Claudia... According to Claudio Vesia Zanini, the final girl has become such a remarkable horror trope that non-slashers have paid a parodic tribute to it, oftentimes relying on the mise-en-beam technique, aka a story within a story. The sixth movie in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, New Nightmare, 1994, also extends the existence of the final girl to the real world through the premise that now Freddy Krueger is attacking no one other than Heather Lanningkamp, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode. 
Uh, but according to Kyle Christensen, one misconception some may hold about the final girl is that based on her gender and ability to overcome a masculine nemesis, she is meant to embody feminist politics. However, as Clover <laughs> makes clear, the final girl is wholly masculine and applauding the final girl as a feminist development is a particularly grotesque expression of wishful thinking. I know we've made this mistake in the past. Yes. Klaus Reiser, a skeptic of the final girl theory, also comments on the final girl's wholly masculine identity as anti-woman, for she is a female figure in a male mold rather than a heroine pursuing a feminine, feminine subjective trajectory. Riser adds that to participate in the phallic struggle, the final girl is doomed to accept sexuality as heterosexual and phallic terms, acquiescing to the hierarchy, to gender homogeny, and never rejecting gender stratification that is centered on the privileging of phallic masculinity. Furthermore... <laughs> Jody Kaisner observes that because of the final girl's inevitable masculinization, female viewers are not identifying with the victorious final girl, but with the unlucky female victims and more inclined to be disempowered by slasher films, not empowered by the final girl. Rather than fixate on the anti-feminism underlying Clover's final girl, this study contends that the final girl can be a feminist character if altered slightly. Mm -hmm. Kyle Christensen goes on to say this study will nominate Nancy Thompson of the original A Nightmare on Elm Street as the more appropriate model of the final girl and feminism in the classic horror slasher film. While Clover associates her alleged grittiness with her toughness in the final climactic duel between her and Freddy, she is also gritty in her stark contrast to Laurie Strode from the 1978 film Halloween due to Nancy's refusal to abide by the arbitrary female belittling restrictions of true womanhood. Put simply, Nancy is a feminist final girl and arguably the first and best model of feminism in the classic slasher film. Hell yeah! Yes, A Nightmare on Elm Street undermines various components of the standard slasher film, three of which relate to those outlined by Clover. First, the traditional profile of the slasher villain is undermined, as Freddy is a killer not represented in constant POV camera shots. Uh, and Nightmare opting ha for more objective detachment camera work that emphasizes on openness of the dreamscape rather than a focused singular perspective. Second, rather than Nightmare's terrible place being a physical location that the victims wander into as they do in other slasher films, the terrible place is actually the human subconscious, the site of the character's fatal nightmares. Third, Nancy is able to defeat Freddy, but not by resorting to phallic violence. Nancy rejects Freddy's gaze on her body by turning her back to him in their final encounter and denying him the chance to objectify and victimize her, unquote. Ooh, yes! <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, and you know... The more I read Men, Women, and Chainsaws, the more outdated it becomes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. It was good for what we needed at the time. Well, yeah, and I mean, it, it should become outdated because if it doesn't, that means that films, horror films especially, aren't changing. 
Mm-hmm. Because yes. she was talking about the films that she knew of at the time. Yeah. So it's a good thing that it's changing and it's becoming, you know, not as, you know, not not what she thinks it was before. Right. It's definitely different now. Yes. Um, what's interesting is that, listen, and much like our episode on Cherry Falls, I will be bringing up Scream a lot without actually doing an episode on Scream. <laughs> <laughs> Sid from Scream was considered groundbra- groundbreaking and a 90s version of the final girl compared to Clover's version, right? Um, but honestly, if you really think about it, uh, Nancy and a side note, even Jess from Black Christmas, they were the actual game changers, not yeah. Sid. Uh, and the unfortunate problem, especially with Jess from Black Christmas, is that she could have started it all, but instead, Laurie Strode's character from Halloween is what people model the final girl after now. Or Sid was modeled after her in Scream. But going back to Nancy, uh, Carol J. Clover said in her book that Nancy was the grittiest of the final girls. And then... That's really kind of it. That's, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's basically all she says about Nancy. I mean, Nancy is hardly talked about at all in that book, which really shows to me just how much Nancy didn't fit Clover's mold of the final girl. Mm. I mean, that book came out in 1992. Nightmare came out in, 90, in 1984. So it's like... Yeah, You know, it's not like it, it came out, like, right before or right after Nightmare. Like, there was some time. There was some space between each film. Yes. And I think it's so funny that Clover just completely... I mean, there should have been a whole chapter on Nancy and how Nancy was the outlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there isn't. It's pretty wild. Um, Like mentioned earlier, Nancy doesn't use a phallic weapon to destroy Freddy at the end of the film. She uses her wits and her willpower, and she tricks Freddy out of her dream and into the real world where she has the upper hand. She sets traps, and she slows Freddy down with those traps, and when the final confrontation occurs, she is incredibly brave, and she turns her back on him. Mm. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, Have you ever seen the Merlin TV miniseries? (laughs) From like nineteen ninety eight or something. Yes, I have. You have with Neil, <laughs> oh, yeah, with Sam Neil as Merlin. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. my god, it was on NBC, and um, I haven't seen it since it premiered, but I will never forget the ending when the main antagonist, uh, the Fairy Queen Mab, who was played by Miranda Richardson, um, she was beaten because the characters just decided to like just never talk to her again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just turned their head and they were like, "We're just gonna forget you, goodbye." And they like walked away from her. And that reminds me of what happens here with with Freddie. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna mention very briefly at the end of this episode how Freddie is like a character from like a fairy tale, like Merlin and stuff, and how that really connects with what Wes Craven was trying to say about freddie as this ancient being in myth you know but um anyway that really reminded me of that well that is so funny too because then you have the opposite of that in horror films like um the conjuring 
mm-hmm. when they're trying to figure out like who Valak is and stuff like that. And there is so much power to giving something a name and speaking it. And it's like the only way that you can vanquish it, really. So that is a really interesting theory. And I think it'll go hand in hand with a lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about later on in the episode when it comes to like trauma and addressing like cyclical trauma and stuff like that. And how like if you ignore it, it just gets worse. But then at the same time, it's like if you don't give the attention to it will it just go away i mean if you're talking to maybe someone who's a narcissist like donald trump i can't even believe i just said his name because i just gave him power just by saying it yeah but i think that that's another i think that somebody like him survives on attention yep 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 and if nobody knew who he was or what he was doing he would not be as powerful as he is that is just that's just an example but i think that they're yeah, it's weird. It's like, which one, you know, <laughs> which one will yeah. defeat the evil in the end, you know? Yep, that's true. All right. So according to Emily Von Seal for their article in Grimm Magazine, though certainly a powerful character during the time of the film's release, Nancy is particularly vital in the era of hashtag me too. This final girl is not content to simply survive her trauma. She challenges it. She fights back. She resists. She stands against a vile, menacing man and forces him to confront her on her own terms. And after dragging him through a proverbial minefield of traps, she puts the final nail in his coffin. I take back every bit of energy I gave you. In this final interaction, Nancy regains control over her own life and denies Freddie the power to influence her further. In a year where we have seen numerous women and men stand up and speak out against the people who have wronged and silenced them, we see their strength reflected in Nancy and in her actions. She fights back against her monster and turns her back on him, refusing to let her past trauma dictate who she will become. She remains a final girl that serves as an inspiration to horror fans everywhere and a reminder that we will not allow the monsters to control us. Yeah, I think that Nancy really works really well as a queer-coded final girl, too, because she subverts the binary gender expectations without being wholly masculine like Clover expects a final girl to be. Yeah. Because she isn't 100% femme, but she isn't 100% masculine either. Yeah. And that goes for both her look, like how she looks, and her personality. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm really glad that Wes Craven did not want to look for a quote-unquote Hollywood type when he cast her, which is kind of what they did for the remake. Um, Nancy uh, is, is, what's her face? Mara of something. She's... Mara Rooney? Uh, yeah, I think that's Mara Rooney. She has, like, this interesting look. She's thin. Like, she looks like she's a, a movie star, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, Heather Landcamp is so normal looking. <laughs> I know. But she's also so beautiful in that way. Oh, I sure. think, anyway. Like, my personal opinion is that, like, if it had been anyone else, I think it would have just been too much too much for the film oh no she's perfect she is normal like she 
And yeah, normal doesn't mean ugly. I don't know why people think I, that. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. There is so much beauty in, in normativity and just like, I mean, even like we talk about her house, like very briefly later on when she's an adult and she's played by Heather Lenkamp. But yeah. like, um, she, she just, she, she is just a normal person and there's so much beauty in being a normal person. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I agree. And there's art and beauty in it and we take it for granted. And I think that that's why she's perfect. Um, but, um, yeah, she just feels like a real person. She's just yeah. Nancy. And according to Kelsey Matson, quote, she's also allowed vulnerability. She cries. She gets exhausted. She's infuriated with her alcoholic mother and smashes her mom's vodka bottle on the floor while screaming in her face. Um, but at the same time, she still loves her mom. Mm-hmm. Nancy also swears like a sailor. She laughs with her friends, and her battle armor of choice is a pair of white pajamas with pink roses, an adorable touch signifying her lost innocence, but also that our heroine can wear pink because, well, she likes pink. Aw, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's no infantilization or coding of her traditional femininity as weak, unquote. I love this. It is absolutely okay for a woman to not like pink or flowers. But pink and flowers doesn't mean you are weak. Yep. If anything, thinking pink or floral patterns is weak is problematic as fuck and you need to check yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it just promotes the whole I'm not like other girls notion, which is so <laughs> 2006. <laughs> We've come yep. a long way, nerdy goth kids. It's time to stop throwing the pink lovers under the bus, please. Yeah. It's not, it's, we're done with that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that was just, uh, I mean, I just feel like Nancy just feels like a normal teenage girl who likes pink and likes roses, but she also says fuck. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? she just seems, she's just, just normal, whatever. Um, we're going to talk more about Nancy and her place in the queer community later. But first, I want to talk about Nancy's relationship with her parents and with the home and... Like, we're going to do that first. Um, So according to Eric Diaz, quote, the film highlights the particular struggles that teens of that era had to face that previous generations didn't. This is perfectly personified by Nancy. She is the child of divorce with two parents that can barely look at each other anymore. Gen Xers were the first American generation to grow up with predominantly divorced parents. And Nancy's circumstances reflect that. A lot of media of the a lot of the media at the time tried to pretend that we all still lived in 1950s sitcom suburban bliss, but Nightmare on Elm Street refused to do this because of our circumstances at home. Nancy has to because of her circumstances at home, Nancy has to teach herself how to survive and how to be her own parental figure. Her baby boomer parents are too self-involved to see what was really going on or how they were the cause of it. Unquote. I really love this, and I think that this film brilliantly captures that concept for a variety of reasons. Um, The parents, thinking that they were doing something to protect their children, to give them kind of a better life, instead created a monster. So Freddy, if you really think about it, is the personification of, you know, the use of fossil fuels, bailing out big banks and executives, the quote-unquote, others that boomers grew to be so afraid of, a.k.a. 
refugees, immigrants, people of color, that sort of thing. He is the residual piece of war and disease that we didn't fully understand yet, like AIDS. And it's no surprise that Freddie looks like a burn victim because we were dealing with the threat of nuclear war during this time period. And we were afraid, yeah, like we were afraid of nuclear meltdowns at power plants. And so he just kind of became this amalgamation of all of our parents' fears, like their worst fears wrapped into one fucking frightening monster. Oh my God. Yes, exactly. And like something I didn't expect was to connect um, A Nightmare on Elm Street with Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me Mm. in regards to their gothic themes. Um, There are a lot of gothic themes in both films. And it's more obvious to me now that I've watched basically these films back to back since that was our last episode. Um, We talked a little bit about the gothic in our previous episode as well as on the multiple episodes throughout this podcast run. Um, But I want to talk about it more, obviously, here and reference this great essay by Claudio Vecchia Zanini. So in gothic literature, the female heroines are most of the time at odds with their parents, caregivers, or captors. Sometimes all of these things rolled into one. Nancy's relationship with her parents and Freddie, for that matter, fit multiple gothic tropes really well. According to Zanini, quote, the story told in the 1984 movie is gothic in a personal sense. Nancy's struggles are mostly individual and her development from a teenager with family issues to a young woman fighting for her life unfolds in between many gothic obstacles as losses, traumatic memories, incarceration, helplessness, and and a supernatural powerful creature. Freddy can can only be defeated when dragged into the real world our world and Nancy's mother insists in a later scene that her daughter must go to sleep despite the girl's claim that doing so could result in her death. Mrs. Thompson's overall response to Nancy's pleas is heavy drinking, having the windows barred and locking the door to prevent the girl from escaping, which turns Nancy into a modern version of a heroine imprisoned in a haunted building, a gothic trope presented in Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, Radcliffe's The Mysteries of Udolfo, and Stoker's Dracula. To mention a few, another connection between Craven's slasher and Stoker's vampire novel is the crucifix hanging above Tina's bed. Uh, So yeah, in any case, Tina's resorting to the crucifix as a protective device correlates Freddy and Dracula as two gothic monsters who feed on vital energy and relish in their victims' suffering and guilt. So I think this is no coincidence. And I particularly like the line that Freddy says when he kind of like embraces his face with his knife hands and he goes, this is God. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is, it's a terrifying acknowledgement that, you know, the God figure that kids were raised by through their parents is actually what is to be feared the most. Mm. Um, Like, God will punish you for being promiscuous and drinking and smoking, something that was really permeable in the era of Reagan, especially. Like, Nancy Reagan's slogan of just say no was kind of on everyone's lips, but it absolutely overlooked the human need to feel pleasure, and it was a white privileged answer to those who grew up in areas that disproportionately dealt with 
you know, lack of medical care, employment, education, and other resources. And if Freddy is the personification of all the stuff I mentioned earlier, like the fossil fuels and the bailouts for CEOs and like new diseases, then that means during that time, we technically were bowing down to him. Mm. We ne- we needed the oil and we loved capitalism and we treated the gay community like lepers for spreading AIDS. Like, obviously, none of that is true. We've discovered now. Thank God. But um, all of this is happening without adding to this the scandals that the Catholic Church has covered up over the years. And... You know, you have all those accusations of molestation, too. That was happening in the 80s as well. That was all, like, really coming to light. So I think that's why Freddy is such a prolific boogeyman. Because, you know, if you talk about religion in this, like, even in the song, you know, five, six, grab your crucifix and stuff like that, like, even that can't save you. Like, nothing is going to save you from the consequences that, you know, your parents have wrought. And unfortunately, you know, their kids have to pay the price. So it's, uh, it goes a lot deeper than I thought it did upon rewatching all of this. It's pretty crazy. Sure. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone who's out there listening, but I'm pretty sure that Wes Craven grew up in a very religious house. So... He probably, as an adult now, truly understands, like, how religion, in a sense, can't, maybe can make you feel better for some people, but in the end, can't really save you from certain things. So Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, according to Marco Lukic and Maya, and Maya Panzik, quote, in virtually all of A Nightmare on Elm Street films, regardless of their current location, the victims are pulled into Freddy's house as if forced to experience the anxiety of entrapment within. Oh my God. That just made me think of something. I, I can't forget this. May help me remember, remember Freddy's house. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, So victims are pulled into Freddy's house as a force to experience the anxiety of entrapment within, something that is also felt by housewives as well as the main protagonist. This feeling is intensified by an aesthetic inversion of the initially safe space of the home. Instead of, as stated by philosopher Gaston Bachelard, protecting the dreamer and allowing one to dream in peace, the house now becomes a morbid site of boarded up windows, slashed curtains, damp walls stained with dirt and blood, floors on various occasions turn into sticky surfaces preventing the victim's movements, and and labyrinth hallways that lead to the basement maze. It is this symbolic revelation of the real nature of suburban domesticity slash place that marks the birth of the advancement of the monstrous. Paradoxically, although the house entraps the victim, it liberates the monstrous, which immensely expands its interior and thus provides itself with a place of its own, unlimited in proportion. In other words, the limitations of a suburban home are being breached from within." So, much like Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, the home in white American suburbia is just as dark and as twisted as a gothic mansion overseas. 
But not only that, Nancy and her friends' own minds are like this. <laughs> Their dreams have become these gothic landscapes ruled by the sexually deviant and murderous tyrant Fred Krueger. <laughs> Lukic and Panzik go on to say, quote, The basement into which the victims regularly descend becomes what Gaston Bachelard would call the ultracellar. Inside this underground maze laced with heating ducts and the pipe strip and the steam bursts out of the valves under heavy pressure, suggesting the outburst of the monstrous conceived in anxiety that is finding its outlet by reaping those who cannot break out of the foundations of the suburban home, out of the norms that have shaped suburban families and suburbia itself into a site of oppression and control. In addition, Bachelard claims that the basement serves as the consciousness of the dreamer. But to whom does the unconsciousness of buried madness belong? Interestingly, the emergence of Freddy in many instances coincides with the moment when the main protagonist, almost always female, experiences severe pressure of entrapment either within the place of home and or close domestic surroundings or within her own body. In fact, one could even claim that the monstrous is a part of her own subconsciousness, the utterances left to fester within for so long that have now arisen in the most deviant form, unquote. Okay, so, <laughs> to me, this screams childbirth. Sure. Descending into something... Like, all of the inner workings. When you see Freddy's lair, it's wet. There's liquid everywhere, which is so interesting because fire and water are used a lot in these films, which I'd love to talk more about later. But yeah, anyone who has experienced childbirth, even people who haven't experienced it, you know that it's really fucking scary during certain parts. Like, if we're looking at this again, kind of culturally and sociologically too, the 80s was a time when abortion became like a really hot topic. Mm-hmm. Like it's all it's always been a hot topic. It's always been something that's like just beneath the surface for us culturally. But yeah, it's always riding the line. Yeah, well, in 1980, the Supreme Court basically said that the government didn't have to fund abortions for people who wanted them mm-hmm. or needed them. So, um you know, it was recognized as a right, sure, but access was limited. So coupled with that abstinence-only thinking about, like, sex ed, I think pregnancy and birth was a really scary thing for women, especially teens, and especially during this time. So this kind of goes hand-in-hand with the concept of how scary sex could be, too. So with that quote that we just talked about, like, If you think about all of the words that he is using to describe the emotions and the feelings that are taking place here, like the pressure and like feeling something erupt from the inside, it is all very, very like sexual. It's very focused on the life cycle, pregnancy, birth, like that kind of thing, which we're going to talk about later. But I think that this is such a brilliant look into how scary that can be. Yes, absolutely. And I just want to add that just because humans have been having babies for thousands and thousands and thousands of years doesn't make the experience any less scary or over like or underwhelming like in the Mm -mm. main. Yeah, yeah. And like (laughs) nowadays, like it's a huge deal 
And no matter when you have a baby, it's still major surgery. Yes. Yes. It just is. So, you know, maybe we don't die as much, but we still die more than we should. (laughs) Yeah. Black women in particular. So maybe do some reading on that because that's friggin' bananas. For sure. Okay. So we're not quite talking about Nancy and her relationship with sex just yet. But this definitely has to do with the topic that we're discussing now. Don't worry, we'll get there. (laughs) We always do. So according to Amber Appleby, nowhere is Freddy's masculine nature more obvious than in the strangely sexual relationship between Freddy and Nancy. The fact that Freddy invades people's dreams when they are lying prone in their beds is already sexual. But Freddie's relationship to Nancy takes that small sexual element to an entirely different level. Already, the imagery associated with each character in the nightmares is sexual, like you mentioned, Abby. Freddie literally wants to penetrate Nancy. There are other more obvious sexual moments as well. When Nancy falls asleep at school and winds up facing off with Freddie, he flicks his tongue at her. In a clearly sexual gesture replicating cunnilingus. Oh, no. I hate that. I hate that part so freaking much. So do I. It's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, Again, toward the end of the film, the mouthpiece of the phone Nancy is using turns into Freddy's mouth and he licks her lips. And he says something like, I'm your boyfriend now, which is like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and clearly <laughs> Freddie has an oral fixation and a sexual desire for Nancy. The most sexual scene in the film is the bathtub scene. The viewer is looking at Nancy in between her bent, sp- spread apart legs and is horrified when Freddie's gloved hand stretches up and reaches for Nancy, or at least a part of Nancy. Robert England, the actor who portrays Freddie, said that it's a question of, am I going to kiss her or kill her? <laughs> Oh, God. Fucking creepy, right? Especially since Nancy is a literal child in this film and is portrayed as only being 15 years old. Okay. But I also want to point out that this scene of Nancy in the tub reminds me of being at the OBGYN. Sure. (laughs) It does. Not that my my doctor is a bad one or like this in any way. Right. (laughs) But if we think about the stage of life that Nancy is in, she's going to be experiencing her visits, like, her very first visits to her gynecologist. Like, Oh, yeah. Like, you're 15, whatever. Some people go earlier. It's whatever. But Freddie's hand could totally represent all of the scary shit that gynos use. Like, yeah, the tools and the instruments and stuff like that. Um, And, you know, again, I go back to thinking about abortion, too. Like, maybe I'm thinking about it so much because of recent events, but I cannot help but feel like this hand could be used as an instrument for giving abortions, too. Oh, my God, yes. And it's fucked up because Nancy, like you said, is young. And, like, she's taking a bath, which is kind of a childish thing to do, right? Like, you don't, you're... When you yeah, like you give, a bath. you give little kids baths and stuff. Sure. Yeah. Well, and yeah. her mom tries to give her milk, which is like very yeah. like Warm infantilizing. Milk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's like, no, mom, I don't need warm milk. I need a fucking therapist. Yeah. <laughs> so and so do you. Yeah. Seriously, go to therapy. <laughs> but on top of all this, I think it is not a coincidence that this scene 
again, involves water. Because it acts like this kind of conduit between Nancy and Freddy. And we Mm -hmm. see it again in the new nightmare, which obviously we'll absolutely discuss. But that the bath is one of those things that's supposed to be kind of comforting, right? Like Mm -hmm. the warm water is kind of acting like this like womb or like cocoon for Nancy. And then out pops Freddy's hand to pierce through. Like he's always piercing and stretching things to pop out of them. Like he's being born. Yet he is a harbinger of death. So... Yeah, that's interesting because his goal is to take revenge on the parents. Yes. So if you look at him, this is like really like controversial. I'm, I'm sorry, y'all, if you're not into this. But if you're looking at this as, in a way of like abortion, like you said, it's like he's almost like by taking a, but he like the mother, right, is there with the milk and she's trying to take care of her baby who's Nancy, who's in the tub. And yeah. then here comes Freddie's hand ready to quite literally abort her. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the imagery is powerful that I can totally see that. And if we're thinking of the water as this like kind of womb, it's like, oh, here comes the hand. Like I'm going to like what what do you call, what's the word like you pop the placenta or whatever yeah i know <laughs> so, like I don't your know. water breaks and like you start to give birth whatever yeah. um this isn't a biology podcast so give us a break <laughs> but um yeah it's like it is that very like medicalized modern imagery of you know like birth and death and it all kind of like blends together into this thing that you're you become super scared of but Freddie kind of is this, not kind of, he is a perversion of something beautiful in that way. Like when we see Nancy relax, we're like, mm, yes, the nice warm bath to calm her nerves. And then bam, like this hand pops up like a snake in the water. And Ugh. like you said, like Freddie is penetrative in that way. Like right. he is constantly like poking and prodding and it's like, get away from me. <laughs> yes and you know with all of that in mind what just makes it even more upsetting and creepy is that there is a theory out there that freddie is the doppelganger to nancy's father right so (laughs) there's gothic aspects to this as well much like how we talked about that in twin peaks fire walk with me like the evil father Basically. Oh, no. Um, yeah, where, like we said, Firewalk with me was very, was prolific in a sense where it actually showed the evil father. It wasn't just coded. It was like right there. Yeah. Um, it's more, co- it's obviously coded in this. But uh, according to Amber Appleby, David Kingsley proposed that the sexual component of Freddie and Nancy's relationship was used to showcase the incest between Nancy and her father. Kingsley's argument is that Freddie is a doppelganger for either Nancy or her father, allowing them to play out their incestuous desire for one another without ever actually admitting that the desire exists. In fact, Kingsley posits that Nancy's father was molesting her as a child and that she dreamed up the name Freddy Krueger and her mother's story about Freddy's crimes in order to repress what her father had done to her, unquote. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> it's awful. I don't like that, especially because she's always like calling him daddy and stuff. Yes. <laughs> yes. And listen, I am not kink shaming. If that's what you call your partner, good for you. But it's because she's 15. <laughs> yeah. And it's her real daddy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is not a very good transition, but we have to keep this going. <laughs> we gotta talk. We're already like almost an hour into this. Let's discuss sexuality and queerness in regards to Nancy. Okay, so oh, great. I know it has nothing to do with what we just talked about again, but um, I want to connect this theme with that gothic theme. Um, so Appleby suggests that maybe Freddy Krueger is actually Nancy's doppelganger. And not her father. So, like, you could go both ways. There's either he's the doppelganger to her dad, who is this, who is a child molester, or Freddie is the doppelganger to Nancy for her sexual desires. So Kingsley's point about Kruger being a doppelganger for Nancy holds some merit. Kingsley uses Sandra Gilbert's and Susan Goober's work, The Mad Woman in the Attic, The Woman Writer, and the 19th Century Literary Imagination, to illustrate his proposal that Freddie could be Nancy's doppelganger. Gilbert and Goober assert that in Gothic literature, the lead female is filling the role of an angel, a chaste and subservient character type, whereas her doppelganger gets to play out all of the fantasies that the lead woman wishes she could. Nancy may not want to murder people the same way Freddie does, but Freddie could be acting out Nancy's repressed sexual desires. Films have taught us that women are not allowed to be sexual beings, and if they are too sexual, they are almost always ultimately punished, often violently, and through their death. Unquote. Um, so, uh, I think this is a very interesting take, and I'm sure a lot of people might agree with it. Uh, I am not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I can see you agreeing with it if if you view Nancy as being queer because she maybe she's feeling sexually repressed because her and Tina aren't having sex together. Yeah. And she's a little bit upset about that. But I don't think of Nancy this way personally. I think if she was bi or straight and she did want to have sex with a man, then she would just do it. Because she yeah. has a boyfriend who obviously wants to have sex with her. <laughs> yeah. And, and she seems to like him. Right. Um, but I think if you want to look at Nancy as queer for women, then this theory makes a bit more sense. Because Freddie kills Tina, then Freddie kills Tina's boyfriend, then Freddie ends up killing Glenn. So, like, uh, the series of events of the people that are killed make sense if she was... If she loved Tina in a sexual way. Sure. Um, but I, you know me, I don't think that. I can see how maybe other people would, but I'm like, eh, I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah. Um, according to Kelsey Matson, quote, Nancy doesn't survive because she was a good girl who avoided sex and drugs while her bad friends were punished for their vices. We assume Nancy's a virgin because we don't see her sleep with her boyfriend, Glenn, but she survives on the merit of her wits, not according to the mercy of some authoritative moral code, unquote. Yes, but also, um, Freddie could 
definitely be seen as the personification of how aggressively we sexualize children in our country, in our culture, really. How as teens, you know, everyone tells us that we're like shitty, horny people who are annoying and all we want to do is bang. Like, I hate that trope about teens so much because they are people. Like, I hate it when people are mean to kids. I hate it when people are mean to teens because everybody goes through that life stage. So for some reason, a lot of movies and TV shows portray teens as just bags of hormones with bad attitudes who only care about getting it in before they graduate from high school. Like, I think for a lot of people around this age, like, yes, sex is new and it's exciting, but there's so much emphasis on it that it becomes a monster, something that parents kind of learn to dread. Like, how many times have you been like, oh, man, my kid is just like having a meltdown today and it's just been really hard. And then people have been like, oh, wait till they're teenagers. Like, like, I, yeah, I get it. And like, sometimes I joke around with my son about it, but it's like, really it'll be okay. We'll all be okay. <laughs> but I think that like this dread for parents has caused a lot of anxiety in teens over the years. So it's like Freddie is all the things that we don't talk about. Like he's, he's waiting for you in the shadows and he's sneaking into your child's bed at night and he's forcing you to see and hear things that you don't want to. He's heteronormativity for gay people, and he's the fear of repressed sexuality for chaste people. Right. And what I also love about Nancy is that she, even though she has a boyfriend, like, she isn't subservient to men, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's like, there's this also this thing where, like, these final girls or uh, just teenage girls in general sometimes are shown as being, like, subservient to men or doing what the men in the movies say but Uh nancy doesn't isn't like this which is kind of great like she expects glenn to help her because he is her boyfriend (laughs) but it's not because he is a man it's just because she has a relationship with him right and she expects her dad to help her not just because he's a man or even just because he's her dad he's a cop Yeah. So she expects these people in her life to help her, not because they are men, but because she is in some sort of relationship with them, (laughs) you know? Right. She depends on them because she knows who they are, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's not just, and she does the same way with her mom and her mom's a woman. So it's like she, she's depending on these people in her life to like give her like some sort of support and they all fail. Like, (laughs) yep. (laughs) Even Glenn, who is like so oh my god glenn is is a sweet guy i guess but he is absolutely useless like he yeah, is so yeah. useless uh, um yeah. but yeah like nancy in the end she holds all of the aces oh speaking of ace <laughs> <laughs> yes According to my fellow queer ace, Amber R.W. Knapp, quote, when Nancy is talking to the group of teenagers and dream warriors about who Freddy was and what he became and why he's after these kids, she tells him, 
She tells them that their parents killed him and now we're paying for their sins. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies aren't a metaphor for punishing sexual activity, drinking, or anything that Randy Meeks would refer to as a sin factor. It's about nightmares where you fall asleep and die. Freddy isn't stalking her as punishment for sex or seeing her as the toughest target because she is pure. She's the daughter of parents who killed him. It's just that. Unquote. And also, just because we don't see Nancy have sex on screen doesn't mean she hasn't had sex with Glenn in the past. Exactly. Maybe they have. But in the context of the film, she's too busy to have sex. Yeah. She's obviously okay <laughs> with Glenn showing up at her house and climbing through her window. Hmm. It's almost like he's done it before. <laughs> Context you know? clues. <laughs> yeah. And Amber Knapp says, quote, all of these elements put together brings us to the conclusion that Nancy is probably asexual, or at least we can read that Nancy is somewhere on the spectrum, unquote. Yeah. And, you know, and if she is asexual, maybe Glenn knows this, and that's why he doesn't give her too much shit when she rejects him. Like, hell, Glenn could be demisexual and only really want Nancy on Nancy's terms. But anyway, like I said, Glenn is pretty useless in a lot of ways, but you can't deny that he at least supports Nancy somewhat and is there as her sort of cheerleader. His you little crop top. I know. Oh, my God. I'm going to bring up the crop top in just a second. Oh, my you God. You can even argue that their social normal gender roles are swapped in a lot of ways or even more so since Nancy definitely has a huge femme side. Hello, cute floral jammy jams. They both balance their masculine and feminine sides equally. Glenn has that crop top. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, Glenn is no Billy Loomis. That's for sure. If anything, he's closer to a Tatum. Hilariously, both characters wear the same crop top. Coincidence? I love it. I love it. Yeah. But I feel like Nancy and Glenn are very much could be looked at as a queer couple. In a, in a straight passing relationship, for yep. sure. Yep. Uh, but anyway, Amber R.W. Knapp goes on to say, quote, asexuality is defined as the lack of sexual attraction to others or low or absent interest in or desire for sexual activity. And this is from the Asexual Visibility and Education Network. An asexual person does not experience sexual attraction. They are not drawn to people sexually and do not desire to act upon attraction to others in a sexual way. Unlike celibacy, which is a choice to abstain from sexual activity. Asexuality is an intrinsic part of who we are. Just like the other sexual orientations, many people of all sexual orientations may go through periods of their lives where they're questioning their orientations. Why should asexually be any different? If you identify as asexual now, maybe later on you'll find out you're another orientation. It's just not a phase. It's just a path to self-discovery. Uh... So maybe Nancy's going through that, too. We don't know. Who knows? Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Another way that Nancy could be seen is the recently defined self-partnered. I love this. Yes. I love, love, love this. Yes. Especially in Dream Warriors, she could absolutely be seen as self-partnered, especially since we don't get that kiss. With that main guy. Uh, uh. Right. Um, So Amber says uh, self-partnered is a term that actress and social activist Emma Watson having seemingly coined and it gained more headlines than the actress would normally garner on her own. 
In an interview with British Vogue magazine in December 2019, Emma Watson opened up about feeling societal pressures and anxieties that hit women approaching the age of 30 because, quote, this bloody influx of subliminal messaging around you, if you have not built a home, if you have not had a husband, if you don't have a baby and you're turning 30 and you're not in some incredibly secure, stable place in your career, or if you're still figuring things out, she continues, there was no word for this kind of subliminal messaging and anxiety and pressure that I felt building up but I couldn't really what I couldn't really name it and so I used the word self-partnered it took me a long time but I'm very happy being single for me it wasn't so much about coining a word it was more that I needed to create a definition for something that I couldn't feel there was language for and it was really interesting because it really riled some people up it was less for me about the word, about, but more for what it meant. Just this idea that we need to reclaim language and space in order to express ourselves because sometimes it's really not there, unquote. Amber continues, which with all this LGBTQ plus community, which is all the LGBTQ plus community has tried to do on a grand or individual level. There are some people who are still uncomfortable with the use with using the word queer, for example. Um, then there are others who feel that queer is the best way to describe their sexuality and are more comfortable with the definitions behind it. While someone could simply define their sexuality as ace, there are at least a dozen more niche definitions of asexuality across the spectrum, such as demisexual or ace flux. And if you look at it this way, Nancy is just self-partnered and taking care of herself. And she's got too many important things to, to do to be worried about sex. <laughs> I know. Or maybe she wasn't concerned with sex because she's somewhere on the spectrum. And as she grew to accept herself as such, maybe, I, maybe Amber says, maybe I'm just reading too much into this because I'm still coming to terms with my queer ace with being queer ace myself but I'll happily take one of my top final girls being on the ace spectrum too and you know what first of all shout out to Amber RW Knapp for helping us out again with this episode it was much appreciated their blog another one for the fire is linked in the show notes check it out hell yeah but yeah it's like and this is something that we've been like too like we focus so much on sex and if people are having sex or if people aren't having sex and it's like maybe we should just leave people alone <laughs> i know like it's so weird and so um like intrusive to people's lives like stop if somebody wants to offer that information up Amazing! I'm so glad that people are comfortable talking about their sexuality. However, why does it matter how someone, like, defines themselves or the word that they want to use for their sexuality? It's a word, it's literally a describing word. What is this, like, everyone complaining that there are too many different types of sexuality and genders. I don't understand it. Right. It's because we are, I mean, I get it. Like we are obsessed with understanding why people are being the way that they are. And the fact that Emma Watson has to be like, listen, I'm just self-partnered. I'm taking care of myself. I'm doing my own thing. I'm too busy to think about a boyfriend or girlfriend or a partner in general. I... Uh, I can't think about it. And that really does, like Amber said, like that really does remind me of Nancy. She is real. She's too busy 
She's just too busy. Whether <laughs> she's ace or not. Whether yeah. she's ace or not, she's too busy. <laughs> so it's just like, <laughs> let the girl save the world, okay? <laughs> yeah, for real. God damn. Yes. And and listen, like, she doesn't just re- represent, like, asexuality or being self-partnered. Like, she could be queer for Tina. Like, she could love her in a sexual way. Like, she could be really anywhere on, like, she could be any letter in the queer alphabet if we let her. And yeah. that's what makes Nancy so amazing is that because she is so normal, anyone can put themselves in her place. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's great. She is like probably the best version of a Mary Sue because yeah. like we all can put ourselves in her place without just standing by and watching other people do the the work she still is like the worker she still gets things done which we'll talk about later but yes um according to eric diaz nancy has accumulated a large following in the gay community since her 1984 cinematic debut freddy krueger actor robert england recollects the popularity of the nancy character within the community upon attending a costume party in 1985 (laughs) and seeing numerous drag queens dressed as nancy in full drag wearing her pajamas with the embroidery and the white streak in their hair robert england interprets this large following as a result of heather langenkamp having a judy garland in the wizard of oz element to her as well as the community identifying with the strong and survivor aspects of her unquote uh okay so i love this and also i think that robert england is like just so nice he's like he seems like a nice man yeah it's true um but now i think it's time for us to talk about a nightmare on elm street three hello y'all it's gracie from the editing room this is the end of part one of our 100th episode wow Uh, Yeah, so next Tuesday, I'll be releasing part two. If you're a patron, uh, you're going to get part two way sooner than everyone else, like within a few days, maybe even within a day. So stay tuned. Support us on Patreon, follow us on social media, support trans people and the Black Lives Matter movement. Links to all of these things are in our show notes. Also, I spoke about Wes Craven in this episode like he's still alive, and he is absolutely not. He passed away in, I think, like 2015. I'm still grieving, obviously. Anyway, we love you all to death. Have a good morning. See you next week. Bye-bye.